I want to take as my text this morning from that reading from Acts. Last week, last week we were in the first part of Acts, and I want to pick up in Acts again. Acts chapter 16, and verse, beginning at verse 16, if you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1099. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, and beginning at verse 16, which I'd like us to read together again so it's fresh in our mind. Acts chapter 16 and beginning at verse 16. And Luke writes, and he includes himself, at least in the first part of it, and as we were going to the place of prayer in Philippi, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain, much money by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Luke says in verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And they came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. And they advocate customs that are not lawful, lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then the crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for a light, for a torch. And rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. What a story. This morning I want to talk about joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. A few people readily associate joy with suffering, and in my experience, this is as common in the church as it is in the world. Indeed, most people associate joy with times in their lives when they're free from challenge and pain. 
And still joy in the midst of suffering is a common theme in the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of His apostles. For instance, the last of the Beatitudes, the last, uh, that is, the last of the blessed states of blessedness that Jesus describes in the beginning of His famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and beginning at verse 10, Jesus says, And blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> really, Lord? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil, that is, lies, against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or James 1, the great apostle of Jerusalem, the head of the Jerusalem council, Jesus' half-brother. James 1 and beginning at verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. <laughs> Rejoice! For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or what we would say today is resilience. And let steadfast ha fast steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Peter, in his first letter, in chapter 4 and beginning at verse 12, beloved, writing to fellow believers, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, we think it's strange. And what's the first, first thing we ask? Lord, Why? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Where did he get that idea? <laughs> if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. And on and on we might go. In fact, I have another one here and I'm going <laughs> to cut to the chase. Indeed, it's the same sort of thing that we have even here in the story of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Indeed, Luke says, beginning at verse 16, and at the first part of this story, until they were, went on trial and, and were arrested and so forth, Luke was with them. Later, he picked up the, what took place after because Paul and Silas told him about it. But notice in verse 16, and we, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, we were going to the place of prayer. Presumably, this is the same place of prayer outside of the city of, the, of Philippi, uh, out by the river where they had met Lydia and so on, as we talked about last week. He says in verse 16, and we were going to the place of prayer, and when we, when we were doing that, moving through the city, because Lydia lived in the city and they were staying there, remember? So they're going through the city and to go out of the city down by the place of prayer at the river. And we were met, he says, by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And this slave girl, one might say she was trafficked, 
brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. That is, she is a slave girl possessed by a demon. In fact, that kind of language is the same kind of language that even the Romans and the Greeks would have used even in her day. And Luke says that uh, they were running a small business with her, a fortune-telling business, and they were making lots of money off of her. In verse 17, Luke says, and she followed Paul and us, crying out, <laughs> these men are the servants of the Most High God. How did she know that? Because, man, they're, they're, they're not saying much in Philippi. <laughs> these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And of course, this was a bit of a problem, as I just said. Um, Paul and his uh, mission team uh, were uh, just uh, getting things started in establishing a church in Philippi. And Philippi was, uh, as we saw uh, last week, a bit of a hostile context in which to do mission. And so they were kind of operating very quietly, what we might uh, commonly refer to as under the radar. And Luke says in verse 18, and she kept doing this day after day after day, crying out and saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are here to tell you about the way of salvation. And Luke says, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, <laughs> turned and said to the spirit that was within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And Luke says, and it came out that very hour. That's a, just a, that's a very literal, a very literal uh, English translation. The word for hour in the Greek can mean lots of things. And it meant that it happened more or less immediately. Note that Paul didn't address the girl. He addresses the, the demon, the evil spirit that was within her. And he cast the demon out in the same fashion that Jesus was wont to cast demons out. In verse 19, Luke says, and when her owners saw, this is all happening very quickly, <laughs> when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That is, the city leaders. In fact, uh, they were regularly stationed, as was the custom uh, in that day, in the, in the marketplace, in the agora. And here in Philippi, and Luke says in verse 20, and when they had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, these, the owners of the slavery girls said to them, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. Certainly he, Paul had, is, was a Jew and he certainly had disturbed their business. Verse 21, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And then the whole crowd joined in in attacking them. Yeah! Now, the owners of the slave girl, they hadn't actually heard Paul and Silas say anything that was against the Roman practices. I mean, they're moving very, very uh, quietly, um, surreptitiously uh, in and out of the city. But they were Jews. Paul and Silas were both Jews. In fact, they were both Roman citizens, which is another part of the story. And what happens to them is actually against Roman law. But because uh, they, uh, these men were seeking to make a case against Paul and Silas for having cast the demon out of this slave girl, they accused them of being anti-Roman, and of course it worked. Indeed, as Luke says, and when they had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and so on. The crowd joined in attacking, verse 22, and the magistrates had their, their garments torn off of them. 
Paul and Silas and gave orders to have them beaten with rods. We might maybe refer to it as a caning in our day. And it was severe, as it always was severe with the Romans. In fact, Paul, writing to the Corinthians in what we know is his second letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it's verse 25, he says that this happened to him on at least three separate occasions. Verse 23, and Luke says, and, and when they had afflicted many blows upon them, when the, and when the crowd was satisfied, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Verse 24, and having received this order, the jailer put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks. The inner prison that would have been no, that would have been inside, the most secure place. What we would think of as a, the maximum security cell. And the stalks in which their feet were put were not only a measure of added security, but were also meant to torture. In fact, those stalks would have several places where feet could be placed. If the jailer was merciful, he would put the, the arrested person's feet in the, in, the, in the slots that were straight forward. And if he wished to be cruel, he could put those, put those, his, those ankles way far apart. And it wouldn't take very long until the person whose, whose feet were in those stalks were in excruciating pain. Verse 25, after being beaten with rods and their feet in the stalks, verse 25, and Luke says, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's what you would have done, right? <laughs> about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. Of course they were. It's almost like the, one of the thieves on the cross who finally turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why did he say that? Because if you, if you read the accounts early on, they're casting aspersions on Jesus just like everybody, all of his enemies down on the ground. <laughs> but then this one malefactor changes his mind. And why did he change his mind? These Jews had seen people crucified almost on a daily basis outside of a major metropolitan city like Jerusalem. But that one malefactor said to himself, I have seen a lots, of lots of crucifixions and I have never seen anyone die like this. Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So here, Paul and Silas have been beaten with rods. Their feet are in the stalks. They're in the maximum security cell. And they're singing. And the prisoners are listening, saying, we haven't ever heard anything like this. And so they were rejoicing in the midst of their suffering. Why? Well, what did Jesus say? Matthew 5, and beginning at verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pastor Richard Wormbrand, the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a ministry that serves the persecuted church in restricted nations all around the world, and Holy Cross is a regular supporter of that ministry. He spent 14 years in communist prisons after the Russians invaded and took over Romania, where he had served as a pastor for many years, and that following World War II, Wormbrand wrote this. He said, I have seen Christians dance for joy in communist prisons. Christians don't have to feel the pain when they're beaten. While in the Romanian jail, I was caught sharing the gospel. This was strictly forbidden, Wormbrand said. The communist guards took me out of the cell and beat me with a heavy stick. While they were beating me, I was thinking about the continuation of my message. I was too busy to feel the pain. When they were finished, they threw me back in the cell and departed. And I said to the men in the cell, gentlemen, let us continue. <laughs> and so Luke says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And Luke continues, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors of the cells in the prison were opened, and everyone's bonds, chains fell off, unfastened. It's obvious d divine intervention. One would think that if it was a, just, a, just an earthquake, uh, maybe something might have been shaken loose, but, but for the bonds to fall off and so on. Luke says that uh, the jailer awoke. It's midnight. And when he awoke, he saw uh, that, the, that the prisons, even in the darkness, he could see that the prison doors were uh, open. And so he drew his sword to take his own life, to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Indeed, under Roman law, uh, for a jailer to lose custody of his prisoners was a capital offense. And so he thought he would just uh, cut to the chase and be merciful, and because it would be very likely that uh, those who would be in, put in charge of his death maybe wouldn't be so merciful. But Luke tells us in verse 28 that Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't arm yourself, we're all here. This is sort of where redemption starts to take place. What kind of attitude do you have toward people who do you wrong and cause you problems? How many of you sort of rejoice in your heart when they have a hard time, when they don't get their way, when they have troubles themselves? Notice Paul's response to this man. This is the guy who threw them in the prison, put their feet in the stalks, we might say, yeah, go ahead and kill yourself, you so-and-so and so-and-so. But Paul reaches out to the man. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Verse 29, Luke says, And the jailer called for lights, a torch. They didn't have electricity, of course, first century. And he rushed in, trembling with fear. Oh, this is all doesn't make any sense. They're singing, and the 
the doors and the, and now he cries out to me, this guy, we beat him. And he's calling out to me, he cares for me? What in the world is going on? And so he calls for a light, he rushes in, he's trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas. He brings them out of their cell and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said to the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not hard. Just trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And your household too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They explained to him. He might have said, well, what, what do you mean by that? And so they explained further. They spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in his house. You've got to tell, share this with my, my people. <laughs> Come down here and listen to what these men are saying. Verse 33, and the jailer took Paul and Silas that same night and washed their wounds. <laughs> they sing. They reach out to this man. They share the good news. He believes it. And now they're friends. Jailer took Paul and Silas the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized by them at once, he and all his family. And Luke says, verse 34, and when the, Then the jailer brought Paul and Silas up into his house and set food before them. Be my guests in my living quarters. And the jailer rejoiced along with his entire household because they had believed in God. And so Paul and Silas rejoiced in the midst of their suffering and the Philippian jailer and his family became believers, adding to the baby church that was being established in the Roman colony of Philippi. I wonder, what do you do when you suffer? I was watching a lecture, actually it was something recorded many years ago, but I had never seen it. Lectures by Elizabeth Elliot, and she said this, defining what suffering is. She said, suffering, simply put, is having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. Listen to that again. Suffering, simply put, is having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. And if that's what suffering is, then we all suffer. Indeed, Robert Llewellyn, in his book, uh, Doorway to Silence, wrote this. He said, our choice as Christians is not whether we will suffer or whether we won't. <laughs> that's not a choice. You will. Our choice as Christians is not whether we will suffer or whether we won't. Rather, he says, our choice is whether given suffering, it will be creative in our lives or destructive in our lives. Indeed, Paul, who suffered in Philippi, wrote something interesting when he wrote to the believers in Rome, Romans chapter 5 and beginning at verse 3, he said, and not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why could he say that? Because he did. 
<laughs> on a regular basis. In fact, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look, beginning at verse 23, I believe it is, and look at the list of the things that he suffered. And not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that, that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character. And when God has changed our character, that produces hope. Why? Because we can see that God is at work. Even in our suffering, God is at work in our lives. John Zoll, who wrote in his book, Grace and Addiction, echoing Paul's words, he said, pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. Pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. And so Mark Hall, who leads the Christian contemporary worship band, Casting Crowns, and I heard him say this a couple of summers ago when I guess it was uh, 2020 when COVID was still on and we were having an outdoor uh, concert. But he said this uh, to, the, to those who had gathered in this outdoor concert. He said, your life isn't falling apart. <laughs> your life with God is falling into place. Your life isn't falling apart. It's falling into place. David Taylor in his great book, open and unafraid, the Psalms as a guide for life, wrote this, to be full of God is to be full of joy. <laughs> what was going on with Paul and Silas? They're full of God. In your presence, Lord, is, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Speaking of Richard Wormbrand. He said this uh, years ago when I actually saw him in person. He came to our church in the mid-80s or early 80s, I guess it was. And he spoke and he said, he said, sometimes in solitary confinement, I would be so filled with divine joy that if I didn't dance, I thought my body would explode. <laughs> to be full of God is to be full of joy. And perhaps that's the point. Indeed, what you and I need are not easier lives, but more of God. Because to be full of God is to be full of joy. Joy in the midst of suffering. Let us pray. Why shouldn't, uh, why, why should any of this, Lord, surprise us? What did you say to us through the prophet Isaiah? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Jesus was always surprising people. He was doing things and saying things that no one expected. And who would expect joy to rise out of suffering? Or how could it possibly be present in the midst of pain? But it can be when you're in the middle of it, as we see, even here, in our text. And it's not to minimize the pain. What we see here described is awful. Paul hadn't done anything uh, evil. In fact, he did something good. He, he released that young woman of the tortures that she was undergoing. Through this demon and 
And then he paid the price together with Silas for doing what is right. Jesus experienced the same. He didn't do anything wrong, and yet they abused him. And this, Jesus says, is the way that the world responds to righteousness, especially when those that we're talking about in the world are powerful and they find such righteousness a challenge to their own comfort or their own power. But you're in the middle of all of it. Help us to remember that, Lord, when we're going through things, opportunities, testings of our faith so that we might grow and change because pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.